As you uh, probably realize, uh, in your blue insert, one of the many, this is like the uh, bulletin of many technicolors, isn't it? Um, we are in our last week of our series through Esther, and I couldn't think of a, a better week in the way of God's timing. You know, this was scoped out 10 or 12 weeks ago, and uh, the dates were kind of locked in, and I couldn't think of a better Sunday for us to be focusing on sorrow than this particular Sunday for us. And I'd mentioned having the opportunity to go to the little town of Tahlequah, Oklahoma this past weekend and visiting my friend Deb. And, you know, as always happens, when you have somebody who's been so meaningful to you spiritually, you, you go and you find yourselves at times hoping to go and encourage them and to give something back to them and to bless them in some way. And as usual, I, I walked away, I'm sure, with the greater blessing, having visited her. Uh, it was a hard time, but it was so good. And uh, I remember as I, I spent a day with my mom and sister, and as I left to go visit Deb, my mom reminded me of a moment um, in my great-grandfather when he was uh, uh, about to die. He was on his deathbed, and a big smile broke out across his face. And the last words that he spoke were these, I'm going to have supper with Jesus. I thought, you know, I'm so grateful to be part of a lineage of faithfulness in a family where you can come to a point of transition from this life into the next and standing confidently in the promises of God. Yeah, that, that's, that's what we have to hold on to. It's not made up. It's not just mere wishing and hopefulness, but it's anchored in that which God has said is true. And that really is our only hope. And that's what, when we come to seasons like our church has experienced in many recent weeks, um, we know that relief from sorrow is God carrying you through. Relief from sorrow is God carrying you through. Sorrow comes to us in a lot of different forms. It can come to us within our families. People disappoint us, don't they? Uh, it comes to us at work. Uh, political realities as they develop can bring sorrow. Other relationships, we can find woundedness in them and sorrow results. There are some sorrows in life that have a longer shelf life than others. I remember at the end of each school year bringing for me a little bit of sadness. and um, I was always excited about the summer ahead and not having to get up and uh, get to school and all the responsibilities that school brought with it. But there was always for me a twinge of sadness because there were certain friendships that are going to be sort of uh, disrupted for a season. And uh, I don't know if our, our children today, if you suffer any of that uh, sort of uh, pain. I remember it always hit me about the last day of school. We'd have our yearbooks and we'd be going around signing them. And I didn't want to, but my eyes would get a little wet. And I said, what is this strange stuff uh, in my, my tears? And uh, uh, it was always brought up this sort of sadness because what was familiar uh, was now behind. And there was another day to come, but that always brought a bit of sadness for me. We Watching America's Funniest Videos recently, we watched, a, a, it was a year-end, I think a, a middle school, they were having their year-end choir song, and you know, it was about saying goodbye and rejoicing in what had happened that year, and uh, the camera zoomed in to one little boy, probably about 14 years old, and he just burst out into tears. He couldn't, he couldn't handle the thought of the sadness, and it was so sad, but it was so sweet to know that he, he was going to miss uh, the things that had gone on that year. We know that there are other issues of sorrow that are a little bit more significant and long-lasting, right? Health crisis comes. 
Uh, many in this church family have been connected with death in, in recent months. And um, what we know is that relief from sorrow comes from God carrying us through. Sorrow, we know that sorrow seeks relief, doesn't it? Our sorrow hungers for relief because no life and no people can bear up under unending sorrow. That was never God's intent for us, although sorrow will touch our lives and will touch many of our lives repeatedly. And we know that relief comes as God carries us through. That is what God did for His people in the story of Esther, in the events of Esther's account there. And God still provides relief for you and for me in the midst of sorrowful seasons. Esther, um, just in case uh, you're new to our series today or haven't had yet the opportunity to read the book, let's go through it again. The big sweep of the story. Esther is a book in the Old Testament. It takes place uh, about 1500 uh, B.C. and it's in the country, the, the kingdom of Persia, the largest kingdom, strongest kingdom, most influential kingdom up to that period of history. Stretched all the way from Africa to Asia, immense in its scope. Cyrus and Darius, kings before Xerxes, had, had conquered people and expanded their territory, and now it had been turned over to Xerxes and into his, his care now as the king. And uh, Esther is the person who, uh, she was an orphan girl. And she was raised up by Mordecai, her older cousin, and his family. Uh, she, uh, unexpectedly in the story, she becomes uh, King Xerxes' choice to become the next queen. It was unexpected for two reasons. Number one was because she didn't come from the usual families that a queen would be chosen out of. And number two, she was a Jewish woman. And uh, she was told by Mordecai, her cousin, not to reveal her ethnic identity. And we find out later as to why that is. And so Mordecai, her cousin, becomes a high-ranking official in the government. And uh, as he comes along, he, he over, uh, overhears a plot and, um, that, of an assassination attempt on King Xerxes' life. And he uh, alerts King Xerxes. And uh, as any good king should do, if somebody saves your life, you should thank that person, right? That's just a good life lesson. If somebody saves your life, thank them for it. So King Xerxes, he comes and he thanks Mordecai. He finds a way of honoring Mordecai. Um, so Mordecai, is, he's, he's in this position. Um, and then there's the villain of the story, uh, the fourth and, and other important character, and that's Haman. And Haman is a man, he, he's, uh, he's an extension. Uh, he's, a, it's, he's called an, an, an Agagite in the book, but that, that is a direct descendant of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the people who stood against the Israelites when they were first released out of captivity in Egypt in the Exodus, and they were moving toward their new home... It was the Amalekites of whom Haman is a descendant. They were the ones who met the Israelites on the road and stood against them, tried to anyway. And so he stands, Haman, in the story of Esther, as all that stands up against the purposes of God. And when Haman, he becomes this high, the highest ranking official. And when he enters the room, everybody's supposed to pay attention. Everybody's supposed to give him honor and to applaud and to bow down. And everybody does except for one person, Mordecai. And Haman, he cannot stand the fact that uh, Mordecai, of all people, he can't enjoy the adulation of the people because Mordecai is the only one who refuses to clap his hands, refuses to bow down in homage to him. 
And so Haman decides that uh, not only Mordecai needs to go, but all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, ought to be eradicated out of the entire Persian kingdom. History repeats itself, doesn't it? Very little that's new under the sun. And so we have with the story then, um, he convinces King Xerxes. King Xerxes says, okay, do what you want to do, it's all right. He convinces him that the Jewish people are not any good in their kingdom. And uh, so this plan is brought forth. Mordecai finds out about it. And he sits in this, this sorrowful mourning. He's wailing and he will not be comforted. Not yet. Not yet. Because God has not shown up and God has not moved yet in the situation. And so Esther uh, becomes informed through Mordecai of what's happened. And she is challenged by Mordecai to go stand before the king and to uh, present herself to uh, petition the king on behalf of her people. And she says, I cannot do that. You know there's a law that if somebody shows up in front of the king without first being invited, that they could lose their life. In fact, I think... Xerxes has lost interest in me because he hasn't asked for me in over 30 days. But you know what? I will do it because you've asked me to and the people need it. And if I die, I die. So she goes and she stands out in the hallway and Xerxes is on his throne and he invites her in and and he says, Esther, I'm so happy to see you. What is it that you can do for me? And she sets up this series of banquets. And at the last banquet, finally... um, they're, they're kicking back on the, the couches and they're drinking wine. And King Xerxes says, uh, this is a good time to ask a request. I'll let you know. Uh, but King Xerxes says, what is it, Esther, that I can do for you? And she says, well, I want you to know that, um, that the queen and her people are in dire straits. And they're set to be executed. And he says, what do you mean? Who would do something like that to my queen? And it's a banquet where it's only Xerxes, Esther, and Haman. And guess who she points at? He's right here. And so the story unfolds, and Haman had this great plan afoot that he, was, he had actually built an execution device for Mordecai. And all, this, all these reversals begin to happen suddenly, just one after another. And Haman himself gets executed on the very device that he had built to execute Mordecai. And uh, everything gets turned around backwards. And the, the book wraps up in these, these verses. Chapter 9, verse 20. And we see really the reason for the story and, and why it's shared for us. It says this, chapter 9, verse 20, Mordecai recorded all of these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. You see, not only were the Jews not annihilated, they were allowed to protect themselves and uh, this uh, idea, this festival of Purim comes along and is initiated. But here's what the Jewish people in this moment learned, learned again, was that relief from sorrow comes as God carries you through. God delivers relief from their sorrows at just the right time. Purim is still celebrated today. In early uh, spring, among faith, uh, Jewish faith communities around the world, Eugene Peterson, in his book, Five Smooth Stones, he, he describes Esther as a book that teaches us about community. 
and the importance of being interwoven together and our lives being woven together. And this is what he says. He says that uh, community life is, is not to be viewed like this pail of pebbles. I've got a whole pail of pebbles here. Sometimes we think that just because we share space together or we share time together that somehow community is forged. And that's not, that's not the way community... That doesn't, necess, that doesn't equate community. We can share a room. We can be here at the same time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we actually have community together. If our lives remain as individual pebbles in a pail, a better picture of community is this. It's one of a body. Right? That's the picture that one of the pictures the New Testament gives for the church. It's the body of Christ. Now, take your hands and do this with me. All right, wiggle your feet. Can you roll, rotate your ankle around? Bend your knee a little bit. Can you move your head? Isn't it great? You're hardly even thinking about it, right? If, if you were to stand up here with me and I said, let's walk to this wall, isn't it good that your whole body works in unison? All right? It's good. That's what needs to happen. What would happen, though, if somebody tied a rope to this wrist and a rope to this wrist and started pulling in opposite directions? Would it hurt? Would it eventually get to a troublesome spot? (laughs) Yeah, am I going in the right direction? Well, one of them may be, but I'm not together, right? The whole idea is that community is not a collection of pebbles in a pail, disjointed individual people that have no real relation to the others. The better picture of community is that of a body where there is individuality within it, but it works in unison. There's a connectivity together. Esther is a book about community. It's a book about being and doing life together. It's a book about walking through sorrows together because when a community goes through sorrows together, guess what? A community gets to rejoice together. You ever thought about how dull rejoicing would be if there weren't sorrows to recover from? Rejoicing is so important. Community that sorrows together also is able to celebrate together. How do we do it? In verse 21, uh, the, the description is to have the Jewish people to come and to regularly celebrate and to remember what has happened. How do we remember things that happen? Well, we do it in a lot of different ways. I, I may not have told you, um, I'm going to tell you someday, um, when I had the opportunity, you probably know the name Rick Warren, a pastor down in Southern California. His brother Jim used to live in Mill Valley here, and several years ago he got involved with a small group that we were part of. And uh, as we got to know him, we discovered something really neat, that uh, neat to me at least. He was a security, worked security for the San Francisco 49ers back in one of their heyday decades of the 80s. And uh, he was a, a personal security uh, helper to Joe Montana. You may recognize that name. And as we got to know his story, we encouraged him as we found out he had some Super Bowl rings. He brought those Super Bowl rings in. And he had about three of them on his fingers. And he would point at them. And, you know, we were like ooing and aahing over them. But it wasn't the the wonder of the rings themselves. But what was so fun for me was seeing how these rings reminded him of the stories of being down on the field 
during the, the championship games and in the Super Bowl season and setting. And it reminded him of his relationships with the players. And it was so wonderful. So there are different ways like that that, uh, that we commemorate things. This last summer, our family was in Washington, D.C., and we got to visit a lot of the memorials on the, the National Mall there. And for me, the favorite one that we got to visit was the World War II monument. And seeing the, the big placards around and the fountains and the, the reflecting pool and uh, seeing the names of the various countries that participated and in helping put a stop to the Nazi onslaught. And, and it's just so great to be able to go to a place like that, that there's a memorial set up so that you can remember. You can remember the sorrow that if things had continued in the way that they were going, it would have been disastrous. And it certainly was. But it was when the intervention came that the sorrow could be replaced eventually with rejoicing. And it is so important that we as people remember. And that's why traditions in the church help us to do that. It helps us to keep the main thing, the main thing. Why is it that every December we continue to remember Christmas? Oh, I'm so bored with Christmas. Have you ever had a child say that? I'm so bored with Christmas. <laughs> well, what about Easter? We remember Easter every year because we need to remember and to rehearse and to celebrate what God has done definitively in, in history, in the coming of Himself in the flesh, the dying on our behalf, to take and absorb our sin into Himself so that you can be set free and have new life in him, we do these things. Celebration contrasts two things. What could have happened with how God brought relief? That's why we remember things, and that's what leads to rejoicing. In verse 22, it describes how uh, the Jews got relief from their enemies, and it turned their sorrow into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. Oh, I'm going to tell you, relief from sorrow is God carrying us through. Eugene Peterson goes on and he says this about joy. He says that joy is not a private emotion. Think about that for a minute. Do you think you could really celebrate or have joy all by yourself? Joy, Peterson says, is not a private emotion. Joy requires community. Community is necessary for us to experience joy, both for its development and its expression. And since community is provided and preserved by God in the church, the response is joy in who? God. Right? I can be thankful for the efforts of people, but my joy rests and derives from God, and I learn to turn that joy back to him. That's why Jesus would say that my joy is to be in you so that your joy might be full. Relief from sorrow is God carrying us through. I want us together this morning to consider some of the recent sorrows in our church. There have been some who have experienced death. Family members have passed. Akiko lost her mother. Cynthia's lost her mother. Al and Alice Vipiana, their 22-year-old grandson, Elliot, has died in just recent weeks. There are others in our church who are facing loss of independence and ever-decreasing mobility. We've discussed Anne Comfort in, in her last days, presumably. Uh, just this week, Betty Rogers, the mother of Donna Turnauer and Andy Turnauer, uh, hospice has now been called in to provide care in what they believe are her final days. 
Uh, Rudy and Meg just spent a month with Rudy's mom in Switzerland. And a few days after returning home, they found out that his mother had uh, gone through a massive stroke. And a lot of the details are unknown yet, but it sounds quite grave and serious. And many others we might list, but this has been a hard season for many in our church in these recent months. And because sorrow is best shared, right? sorrow is not intended to be borne up by yourself. Sorrow, that's why God puts us in a community so that these can be shared. A community that sorrows together, learns to help each other, rejoice together as God carries us through. Here's what I'd like to do, a little, little different than what we often do. I was able to read some passages of Scripture with Ann and Don when I visited them, and especially in moments of, of serious and sort of permanent sorrow, in a sense. Sometimes we read these passages, and, or we might just read a verse out of the passage, and I thought we would just spend a few moments together being ministered to by the reading of God's Word and letting it wash over our ears, our minds, and our hearts and hearing some of these well-known verses set in their broader context. Can we do that today? I'm just going to sit down and just read some of these passages that are such a blessing that remind us that relief comes to us as God carries us through. If you want to turn your, maybe, if you want to note these down for future reference, it's coming out of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it culminates in the well-known passage that uh, what can separate us from the love of God, right? Uh, but let's hear the, the great words before it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, we hear the words of Jesus. Some of His last words to His followers. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there? to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. One last passage. We could go on and on. But one that was so meaningful as I sat with Don and Ann comes from the first book of Thessalonians. In the church at Thessalonica there in Greece, they were struggling with the idea, if we hear our Christian followers and we trust that Jesus is going to come back, what happens if He comes back? What happens to those who have died before us? He describes those who have fallen asleep. 
What's going to happen? Help us understand. Put our minds and our hearts at ease. And this is what Paul writes to them. He says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. That's not our calling as Christians. We are those who have hope because we stand in and upon the promises of God. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then I love this. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The words of the Scripture are given so that we might encourage one another with them especially in the seasons of sorrow, especially because that is how God carries us through. Relief from sorrow comes as God carries us through. And God's choice is to carry us through in the midst of community, in the midst of togetherness, so that the community that sorrows together is also the community that learns to rejoice together. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. God, we pray this morning, wherever we find ourselves today, maybe sorrow has never touched our life. Maybe we're, we're young and we don't yet know the reality of deep sorrow. But God, I, we know it will come. Maybe we have experienced too much sorrow and it feels like relief may never come. God, we need Your relief. We know that we desire, God, to be a community not not pebbles filled in a pail, but a body of Christ that works together, that helps each other, that supports one another. So God, we pray that You would give us the ability to have lives so integrated that we might be encouraged in Your Word and take Your words and to encourage one another with them because relief from sorrow we trust comes as You carry us through as we stand upon and live in and trust beyond measure the promises that You have made, both for this life and in the life to come. Thank You for delivering relief in Your good time in the way that we need it. Together we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing in a moment our final song together. And this again is an opportunity for you. Maybe you don't know what it is to turn your sorrows to God and you would like to come and maybe begin a conversation about what it means to really rest and to trust in these promises that God can carry you through sorrows in life into the rejoicing that comes on the other side. If there are any questions that you have or any decision today that you...